a stranger stepped into an open church for a few minutes of contemplation and was surprised to find a purse sitting on the pew in front of him. Since no one else was in the room, a question promptly arose in his mind, was this a temptation of the devil or the answer to a prayer? There are different levels of temptation, and it seems we might be able to graph them somewhere along a line. On one end, there are temptations where we know right from wrong. When my neighborhood buddies hid behind bushes and threw tennis balls at passing cars, I think they knew right from wrong. Otherwise, why would they have hidden? They chose not to resist that temptation. So that would be at one end of the line. Moving down the line, we may be tempted to exceed our recommended daily allowance of saturated fat when we see a dessert tray. It's not morally wrong to eat dessert like it is to try to intentionally damage a car, and yet the line seems a little blurrier. At the far other end of the scale is the kind of temptation where we can't discern the difference between right and wrong because both options could have positive outcomes. We're like the stranger who walked into the empty sanctuary and saw the purse with no observable owner. Was this a temptation of the devil or was this the answer to a prayer? In Matthew's telling of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, The tempter, a.k.a. the devil, seems to be aiming for the end of the temptation line where Jesus would have a hard time distinguishing between right and wrong. After all, think of the good things that could come from these suggestions that he's making to Jesus. If Jesus would take stones and turn them into bread, every hungry stomach could be filled. If he were to perform some death-defying stunt like jumping off the pinnacle of the temple and floating to the ground with the help of angels, think of the opportunities that Jesus would have to tell people about God. Or if he were to rule all nations, all the nations he could see from that high mountain, he could be a benevolent leader and enact laws that are completely just. We learn a lot about Jesus in this short passage. It's it's part of our introduction to Jesus in the book of Matthew. The two verses prior are the closing passage from Jesus' baptism. They describe how the heavens were opened to Jesus as he came out of the waters of baptism and he saw the Spirit of God descending in the form of a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven came and said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. So we jump, as Barbara Brown Taylor says, with Jesus' hair still wet from his baptism. We jump then to the wilderness. The Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that descended on him at his baptism, is leading him into the wilderness. Interesting, isn't it, that God's Holy Spirit would lead Jesus into temptation? And Jesus didn't fight it. 
It's as if he relished the thought of a fight, like a spiritual Muhammad Ali. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Come on, devil, give it all you got. Right? So we learn here, among other things, that Jesus was a man of confident courage and strength. Even in a weakened state, he beat the devil three out of three. I find the shows like How It's Made or Modern Marvels, these things about how things happen, to be interesting. And Science Channel had a segment on how it's made about how cement pipes for the underground are made. First, thin steel bars are set in a circle and a tube, and then another wire is welded to them in a spiral pattern to hold them together and form the cage including the the bell opening at the end. And then molds are placed around the cage on the outside and on the inside, and cement is poured inside that mold. After it dries, the mold is removed, the pipes are still fragile, and so they're set up vertically to cure. And then only then can they be used underground where they hold back tons of pressure. Imagine how God is like that reinforcing steel inside us when the heavy earth burdens us, tempting us to crack under its pressure. Jesus had this divine reinforcing steel as a part of his character. And so when the devil baited him using sacred words of scripture, Jesus didn't appear to even have to pause before he found a verbal counterweapon to withstand the devil's pressure. The combination of Scripture and his relationship with God gave Jesus strength for the victory in these three battles. So one question the Scripture brings to mind for us this week is, if we learn about Jesus by examining what he did in the face of temptation, then what do people learn about us when they see us in a place of temptation? When the conversation arises about tax season and a person mentions that she doesn't include certain income on her taxes, what do you learn about her? Even if she is godly in every other way, you might assume that she can't be trusted based on that snapshot. In another snapshot, I was driving north on Main Street, and I braked behind a car that was waiting for the car in front of him to turn left, while there was plenty of room to pass on the right. Now, remember the driver's ed rule, thou shalt not on the right. And this guy didn't. Well, that's unusual. Don't you find? And I I was, as I was waiting then for that other car to turn, I noticed the little Christian fish symbol on the back of his car. And that snapshot of what this person did in the face of temptation made an impression, a positive impression on me so that I would be more tempted to follow this person than someone 
who had that Christian fish symbol and then zoomed around that car when it was illegal. He could have committed all kinds of crimes in the past, but he looked good for that moment. Well, if you're normal, you've got quite a few snapshots that you'd like to tear up and burn. My most embarrassing moment was when I asked a friend about the health of his mother, having forgotten that she died the previous year. That's a snapshot I would like to burn. And there are plenty of other times I wish I had done something differently. And if many people had seen those things, I would just prefer to live as a hermit somewhere away in the desert. And I suspect we all have a few of those snapshots we would like to toss into the fire. And so here we are in Lent. Lent, the season of self-examination. Lent, the season perhaps of increased solemnity. Lent, the season of confession and repentance, preparation for receiving Jesus. Lent, the season where we are encouraged to turn back for God and to ask God for forgiveness. We read this in the psalm, Psalm 32. We read about what happens when we withhold confession and repentance. It's in verse 3. He said, when I kept silence, when I did not confess, My body wasted away through my groaning all day long. But two verses later, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That is the purest form of acceptance, complete forgiveness, complete welcome despite all of these snapshots that we would like to burn. Now, our our human and therefore our institutional temptation is to focus on ourselves. As a church, to focus on our survival as a religious institution, to focus on what we want and not what the community around us needs. And the devil can help us make it sound good too. Well, if we take care of ourselves, then we'll be around longer to take care of others. Well, if we can get more members in here, that'll help our bottom line. And then, then we can minister to the community. Well, if we only let nice and decent people in here, then we won't have to make as many repairs to the building, and it won't cost us as much, and you know how it goes. Each of these is an excuse tempting us to focus on ourselves and on our own convenience instead of being servants to others as Jesus was. And this is what the devil was doing to Jesus, or trying to. we're not sharing the love of Christ with those outside the church, if we're not being Christ to those outside the church, well, then why would God want to keep us around as a church? While we pray for God to lead us not into temptation, we also recognize that we will find it on our own. And so we pray for God to deliver us from evil. 
Just like we can't experience Easter without passing through the pain and suffering of Good Friday, we can't experience deliverance without temptation and repentance. Kathleen Norris wrote a book called Amazing Grace, a Vocabulary of Faith. And in her little essay on repentance, she talks about reading the Psalms to students and her surprise, or their surprise, at discovering the gamut of emotions that are within the Psalms, from praise to the aches of the soul to cursing the enemies and anger at God. And since she sometimes then invites the students to write their own psalms, she's found that children who are picked on by big brothers and sisters can be remarkably adept when it comes to writing cursing psalms. And once a little boy wrote a poem called The Monster Who Was Sorry. He began by admitting that he hates it when his father yells at him. And his response in the poem is to throw his sister down the stairs and then to wreck his room and finally to wreck the whole town. The poem concludes, Then I sit in my messy house and say to myself, I shouldn't have done all that. And Norris continues, My messy house says it all. With more honesty than most adults could have mustered, the boy made a metaphor for himself that admitted to the depth of his rage and also gave him a way out. If that boy had been a novice in the 4th century monastic desert, his elders might have told him that he was well on his way toward repentance. Not such a monster after all, but only human. If the house is messy, they might have said, why not clean it up? Why not make it into a place where God might wish to dwell? Why indeed? Lead us not into temptation, O Lord, but when we get there on our own, deliver us from evil. Let us recognize our vulnerability, but also take hold of the strength and power of God that already is within us to replace evil with goodness.